This is Creator Talks, episode 11 with Ron Randall. Welcome back to another episode of Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. On the show this week, my guest is Ron Randall. And if you read my blog post last week, I teased who was going to be our guest on the show this week. I posted a cover of DC Comics Future Quest number 9, and that was on sale in stores on January 25th. Ron is the artist on the interiors of the book and is credited on the front cover. Now, Ron has a very long and impressive resume as both a writer and artist. He started his comics career at the Kubert School in the early 1980s, directly under the guiding hand of Joe Kubert himself. During our talk, Ron shares some of his memories of his experience at the school and of Joe Kubert. Ron launched his professional career working in DC Comics as a writer and artist on some backup stories, and he also worked for Marvel Entertainment and for Eclipse Comics as well. During the 1980s, while working for other publishers, Ron also created his own comic book character, Trekker, which was published through Dark Horse Comics in the pages of Dark Horse Presents. Trekkers returned to comics in a trade paperback of original material, Rites of Passage, which is out on February 8th. Ron and I talk about Trekker, about the trade paperback, and how it fits in with the overall history of the character, Mercy St. Clair. Ron is also the co-founder of Periscope Studios, which was established in 2002 and now is under a new name, Helioscope Studios. Helioscope Studios has a very strong alumni and a very strong studio membership. Now, my conversation with Ron Randall about his career in comic books and especially his work on Trekker and how it all began. And here now, my conversation with Ron Randall on Creator Talks. Glad to catch up with you. I haven't talked to you in um, probably over a year. Well, that's the way it is in this crazy world of comics, isn't it? We're, we're scattered far and wide, and we uh, cross paths occasionally as conventions and such things allow. Right. No, last time I talked to you was um, at Baltimore in 2015. I think you were working with your daughter that day at the booth. Yeah, it's probably true. She uh, she uh, she just moved here back to the West Coast, which I'm very happy about. But uh, when she was living there, in uh, she was living in Arlington, Virginia, and uh, so that was a great, um, it was a great opportunity for me to go out there and visit with her, and then we just would trip down to Baltimore and, and do the show together because she's uh, she's my daughter, which meant that she grew up loving comics and reading them, and so <laughs> so it was a treat for us both that we got to spend time together and, and you know share the the comic experience, and it was really fun to have her. Uh, at the booth there. So now we're looking for a show. Uh, she lives down in the Oakland, San Francisco area. So now we're looking to see if we can do that on a, on the show down there in the Bay Area sometime. Oh, that's great. Yeah. When I was at yeah. the con, I was there with my daughter, too. Uh, she's in art school. Oh. Actually, she just graduated from art school in photography. So I brought her along with me because she likes comics, too. I got her started uh-huh. reading comics when she was younger. I uh, started with Spider-Girl, <laughs> naturally. That's so. a good a good entry point. Yeah, yeah she yeah. liked it. I gave her one. She's like, uh, "Do you have any more?" I'm like, "Well, sure do." So um, yeah, I just kept. I would always like <laughs> buy a, a copy. Question the dad loves to hear, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Basically, ever since my daughter moved to to Arlington, okay. said, "Dad, if you come, if you come to see me, we can do the convention." Blah blah blah. Well, when you're when you're twenty something year old daughter invites you to spend time with her, you just say. Yes, dear, and then you make it happen. So <laughs> <laughs> that's really nice. That's well, great. Well, and I have to say though, to to do to do justice to the show though, mm-hmm. um, I had been hearing about the Baltimore convention from other pros, um, and it's spoken it is spoken of so highly amongst creators as being um, one of one of the very best shows for um, for us for for. The fans that go to that show are clearly still extremely comic book focused, and they enjoy interacting with the creators. And a lot of them are, you know, looking for new, new things to read, to explore. And and you know, doing a doing my own, you know, sort of trekker alternative project, whatever you however you categorize it. It's not it's not a mainstream superhero book, so I'm really dependent on people who are curious and seeking, you know the less trodden path or whatever. So, in other words, so I've been hearing about Baltimore. It'd be one of the shows that had been on my radar is, oh, I should get there sometime. 
And then when my daughter moved to that area, just you know, it was a good it was a good confluence of events. I guess I'll put it that way. Yeah, I've heard the same thing from creators I've talked to there, and I enjoy going there as well because it is very comic creator and comic book focused versus Hollywood and television. And there a little of that's creeping in there now with guest appearances, but it's not dominating the show. And it is a great place to discover new titles, new creators, and actually have a chance to talk to them. In a very casual yeah. kind of not not an overly crowded setting, you know, it's not like a madhouse. It gets very busy, but it's not so busy that you can't access someone and just have a chance to talk to them. Right, and, and I think part of that is the fact that they do keep the celebrity guests, the sort of e- event sort of things down uh, pretty well. So there's never that, sen- that that frantic sense of showbiz buzz that happens at some con- some conventions. In fact, you know, uh, as far as I could glean from the announcements that I could hear over the intercoms, there were only really a couple of celebrities whose whose names I heard mentioned. One was uh, Sean Austin, and one was um, Haley Atwell, mm-hmm. who both have pretty strong, you know, comic-related cred. <laughs> and, uh, in fact, Sean Austin actually um, um, came, you know, was, was out on the floor uh, using that Periscope feature, I guess, uh, to, uh, to document the show and stopping and you know, talking to little kids who are dressed as Iron Man. It's really enjoy the thing. And he popped and he stopped by my uh, by my table. I guess Trekker caught his eyes, so he stayed there and we were chatting for about about twenty minutes. He was asking about Trekker and he bought the books. He said, oh, "I've got a couple of daughters," and so uh, so it was even as a for a celebrity, it was it was pretty integrated itself to me. Uh, and uh, that was a Baltimore kind of experience. So I had a great time, and and a lot of the. Convention goers also, uh, I would hear, I, I've heard a lot of them comment every year about they also appreciate the fact that, like you were saying, this is this is a comic centric show. There is, I think it's almost impossible to have a, a a large scale show without having a couple of you know other media guests, for lack of a better phrase. But uh, Baltimore, to me, always has done a great job of keeping the proportions right on that sort of thing. They have, yeah, definitely. I wanted to talk about your book coming out very soon, Rites of Passage. But before yeah. we do, um, I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. first about your storyboard work. You've been doing some commercial work. Yeah, I, well, that, that, that sort of comes and goes. I mean, it comes in the in fits and starts like a lot of those things do, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was just talking to uh, Gabe Hartman last week, and he does storyboard work for films. Yeah, I, I heard your interview with, with Gabriel. I thought it was, it was terrific. And, uh, you yeah, know, what a... What a what what an amazing talent he is. Uh, as, uh, and I, I agree with so much of what Gabriel was saying about um, uh, uh, that, that are, and because I've come to, to, um, to feel exactly the same way about, about my job over time. And that is my job is I'm a storyteller. Um, the, when I, when I talk to, you know, groups of grade school kids or when I'm just talking to um, young artists, that or maybe showing samples of their work or whatever, or people at convention, I just say that um, it's, it's, it's nice when somebody uh, compliments me on the way I've drawn something. Um, but, but I say my, my, I view my real task as a storyteller and the ability to, you know, draw well is important only to the extent that it helps serve telling the story better, more, more compellingly and with greater clarity and, and that sort of stuff, and and I think Gabriel, you know, he's 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 got his focus in exactly the right place as far as all that's concerned. Yeah, and one thing you do very well that you created is uh, Trekker Mercy St. Clair, and she's coming back February eighth in Rites of Passage, being published by Dark Horse Comics. Now, for my listeners who aren't familiar with Mercy St. Clair, uh, why don't you just give us a brief uh, overview of her? She's a very strong female character, and I think this would appeal to a lot of our listeners. Uh, well, thanks for saying that. First of all, and um, yeah, the, it's, Trekker has a has a as a series has a long history. Um, the I guess in a nutshell, what I'd say Trekker is um, it's um, it's it's at its heart it's a it's a coming of age story. It's about a young woman whose life begins steeped in this in the world of uh, a gritty, violent future, sort of a, a Blade Runner noirish city sort of environment. Um, and she's a bounty hunter, and uh, she uh, tracks down the bad guys for money. But as the stories uh, continue, um, she is sort of forced gradually over time to realize that the world is a more complicated and nuanced uh, situation than that. 
all she wants to do, she likes to keep it simple. You know, she's a young woman in her mid twenties and, you know, she sees things as black and white. And, but, uh, as we grow up, we all tend to start to realize that, uh, there's more going on than that. And she also, uh, gradually time, the readers see it a lot sooner than Mercy does, but there's a lot more going on inside of her than she's aware of too. So, um, I describe it as being a long form. It's a coming of age story that's told through a series of action adventure tales because the 12 year old kid in me still loves all the trappings of science fiction, you know, flying cars and spaceships and crashes on alien, alien planets and, mutated creatures, <laughs> crazy science fiction gadgets. So I love uh, all of that stuff, but I try to put it in the service of, of tra- tracing the arc of this young woman's gradual evolution and, uh, and her path to seeing where she can um, become more and, uh, and have a greater effect on the world at large than, uh, than just that isolated, you know, uh, scraping for existence that, that at first she's willing to settle for because she doesn't know there's more than that out there. So maybe that in a nutshell does it. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. And it's been a while since we've uh, read her exploits. The last was trained to Avalon and that was in dark horse presents where as just to kind of set the stage for the story. So readers know where they're entering. Where do we find mercy when the story opens? Where is she in her life at this point? The writer's passage takes place um, shortly after the train to Avalon Bay. Um, uh, Mercy at, at this point, she, um, she has been accumulating these experiences, and uh, to this point in the series, a lot of what's going on is the the gradual awareness of of a growing sense of scale uh, and complexity of the outer world, and the growing sense that there's more potential and stuff inside of Mercy has has all been sort of played out, been playing out sort of subtly to this point, and. Um, uh, since the train tap on Bay was in a way sort of a reintroduction to the character since I'd been away from it for a long time. That's uh, the omnibus collects all the, the sort of the first cycle of stories that I did before I had to take a long hiatus from the book. Um, then Avalon Bay sort of reintroduced the characters and the setting uh, and put us poised for uh, rites of passage where Mercy, um, uh, I guess to, to, to try not to give away things, but um, she winds up getting pulled into a story that takes her way out of her comfort zone and out of her element and thrusts her into a situation where there's a lot of large forces at play and uh, she just sort of gets caught up in this uh, and, and it results in um, in a, uh, the beginning of, of some awareness is starting to seep in uh, in a way that's really going to profoundly affect the arc of her life from this point on. And this is in a trade. And right. if that intimidates people, they go, ooh, trade, my budget. But this is twelve ninety nine, <laughs> and so it's 88 pages. Yeah. So basically what you're looking at is a four-part story in essence, like four comic books, but you're getting it all at once. Yeah, um, and uh, I've, I've talked with the, the folks at Dark Horse uh, about about the best ways to get the stories out, and uh, they're, they're great to work with as far as trying to figure out formats that are um, – so the most accessible for readers and the most effective ways to present stories. So um, my plan is to have all the books released uh, as a series of great paperbacks. And sometimes in some cases, the situation and the story will, will warrant being say serialized in dark horse presents first, um, because that's always a great way to sort of catch new readers eyes um, and then drive them towards the, the collections of the trade paperbacks too. So, but oh, in yeah. this case, it's a, it's, a, it's a story that, you know, none of this has, has appeared in print before. So, it's, yeah, it's an all-new original uh, story that will that'll be, be coming out in February. No, and you make a great point about Dark Horse Presents because I was going to bring that up, uh, that that's where The Train to Avalon Bay was first published. It's one of the best things <laughs> about Dark Horse Presents is that it's a great anthology. And, like, not everything in the book appeals to me, but a lot of it does. And I think there's something there for everyone. So... The most important thing is that it'll expose you to something that you may not have picked up otherwise, just on its own on the shelf, and expose you to a lot of new artists and new writers and new concepts. Yeah, I think that's that's very well said. And uh, I know that myself, even though <laughs> I've you know I've been steeped in this industry for for many years, I still find it really daunting to walk into a comic book store often because there'll be an entire wall or several walls <laughs> that are just filled with titles and in some cases even publishers that I've never heard of before or read any 
uh, books from, and it, it can be sort of overwhelming. And, and so for, for most of us, uh, we need to have our experience curated a little bit. We need, it's great to have somebody who has a pretty good overview, like a, like a really good comic shop owner who can say, oh, you like these sort of books, you might also like these. They can just sort of help guide your eye a little bit, or at least point you in areas. Um, and Dark Horse Presents, of course, it's uh, you know, hand-selected tales uh, that have a wide variety. And as you say, it's it's very rare, I think, to pick up an anthology, at least it is for me, I'll put it this way, and as you were just saying, like every single story in there. But but it is it is a great way to be exposed to a lot of different stories that all have, what they have in common is pretty good quality. They're, they're professionally done and presented in uh, a wide range of imaginative visions of what comic books can be and, and can be about. Um, so I think you know, those, those anthologies uh, serve a tremendous value for, especially for the reader who is, as we were saying before, sort of trying to, trying to um, find some new horizons within comics. Absolutely. Um, and I wanted to go back to the early years now, because um, you have a wealth of experience uh, working in comics, commercial art, and you are a graduate of the Cooper School. And yes. I wanted to ask you about your experience there. I've talked to other writers and artists at conventions about their experience at the Cooper School. They said it was very difficult and um, because they're they're at the school, they're trying to create an environment much like it would be in the real world. There's real deadlines, real mm-hmm. pressures. So what was your experience in those early days working at the Kubert School? And if you had some time working with Joe Kubert? I absolutely had time working with Joe. Um, I, I was, I mean, I, I just, it was just incredibly lucky the timing was. Um, but the Kubert School was just, you know, just starting up at the time when I was, uh, when I was ready to sort of, when I was at the point where I was going to need to figure out what I was going to do with myself, with this with this desire that I had to to, to draw comics, but I didn't have to see a clear path to go to try to get there. I was living out uh, in, in where I still live in the, uh, the the wild remotes of the Pacific Northwest. I live in Portland, Oregon, and back when I was getting started, the entire comic industry was based in Manhattan Island, which is you know three thousand miles away from home and it's like saying you wanted to be an astronaut and walk on the moon or something. It just sort of really, really did sort of feel almost that remote. Um and right around the time I was, you know, uh wondering what I was gonna do and I saw an ad for the Cubit School, so I applied and got in and next thing I know I'm standing in the middle of New Jersey saying, I guess I must be serious about this because I'm standing in the middle of New Jersey, which is just the last <laughs> place in the world I thought I'd be. Um, um it was um yeah, I I can pretty much uh, uh, verify what, the reports that you heard from other artists uh, that you say that went there. It was very demanding. Uh, you had to draw a lot and constantly, and you were given lots of assignments. And um, I was glad that I had a couple of years out of high school, uh, being in college. Um, made, I majored in art and and literature, so. Um, you know, there, there's a huge difference when you go from high school where, where, where the classes, are, there's a structure for you and the teachers are sort of motivated to try to make sure you complete assignments as opposed to going to college where they, the professor doesn't care, you know, if you fail right. his course or not, mm-hmm. or her course. Um, so you have to be more self-motivated and self-disciplined. And, and when I went to the Cubit School, those who had come right out of high school just really were not prepared uh, to see drawing as being work. Uh, they thought it was, I think a lot of them thought it was going to be a fun recreational thing they could do to kill time. Um, but there were some of us who we were dead serious about this and, uh, and, uh, we, we stuck with it and were focused and we were working when the school first started out, they didn't have a lot of the instructors. They weren't, weren't really experienced at being teachers at constructing, you know, lesson plans and that sort of stuff, but they just had, decades of professional experience in their brains. And if you were willing to roll up your sleeves and work and ask them questions and watch what they had to show you, because um, most of those instructors were at their best when they had a pencil in their hand and were sitting down drawing, and you would watch that and ask them questions, I'm trying to get this tree to look this way, or I'm trying to get this figure to do that. You know, um, they would they were incredibly generous with with their, you know, with with their knowledge. And um, Joe was <laughs> right at the top of the list as far as being generous. Um, 
when I went there with a two-year program, and then uh, it was a very small graduating class because it was a small school that was just building, you know. So only a handful of us that graduated were really um, focused on comic books, per se. The school trained a lot of people who went into other related fields, you know, graphic arts. Um, some may do into animation and that sort of stuff, commercial art. In, in a lot of different areas. But those of us who were specifically focused on comic books, Joe, after we graduated, gave some of us these little, little short stories that were going to be published in DC Comics, professional work. <laughs> they didn't pay us very well. But um, we got to work side-by-side uh, side with Joe on these things. Uh, we would work on the, the breakdowns for the story and take them over to Joe's house and sit down with Joe Kubert at Joe Kubert's drawing board. And he would look at our thumbnails, and he would say, that's not bad, but you could also try it from this angle or this angle. And he would just very quickly with a pencil just block out three or four better solutions for every single drawing I had done on a page. And he wasn't doing it to show off or to make me feel bad. He was doing it to communicate the fact that, like, as I was saying before, our job is to be a storyteller, and you have to look and all the different possibilities for what angle is going to work best to tell that story well. And so it was a, in a way, I, I've often felt it, it felt like he was allowing us to crawl inside his brain and see how it worked as a storyteller. Um, so it was just absolutely invaluable. Um, and just a real, a real privilege. I felt, I've always felt really, really fortunate that I had that opportunity and learned so much. And a lot of stuff I, I learned from Joe, I didn't realize how much I'd learned and I wasn't really able to bring it all into my work for a few years because <laughs> there was just so much. You know, he was so far ahead of us. So Joe was really um, a, a, a true teacher, um, not just an instructor. I mean, he was really there to work with his students to help them achieve their best, the best that's within them. Yeah, and it was all driven by Joe's um, you know, his, his incredible passion for comics. I mean, I think Joe is one of those artists that when you look at his work, uh, it, it just it just comes off the page. The the it's like the raw emotion and the power that uh, just part of his personality. And and he was he was just very very passionate. And uh, one of the one of the things that I'm the most profoundly grateful that I learned from Joe, not because he preached about it or was telling us to do it, but just because he was leading by example. It's the way he lived, and that is that he was always passionate about storytelling. And the, the last books that I saw Joe draw were some uh, issues of his own character towards uh, and a couple of other things that he did at DC just like a year or two before he died. So he was in his, I guess, mid-80s. And they had just as much, you know, you know that, that passion and energy um, as, as the stuff that he did when he first began his career back in the 1940s in the Golden Age of Comics. Joe never lost his passion for telling a great story. And uh, uh, I, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that I still feel as engaged as I do in this career. I mean, you do have to do a lot of drawings in this job. And if you're just focused on some of the superficial details, I think you'll wind up drifting away and finding an easier way to make your living. Now, when you worked on Sergeant Rocks, that's something that Joe had assigned you to work on? Or uh, was that post-graduation? Yeah, I was, well, it was post-graduation for me, but Joe was the editor of the book. And um, so there would be, and back then, uh, a lot of DC Comics would have a lead feature that would be, I don't know what it would be, 17, 18 pages long, roughly. And then there could be these little backup stories in them, uh, a little two or three or four page story about one of the, one of the backup characters in, 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 in the in Easy Company's Sergeant Rock's company, or even a tale from the Civil War or whatever, and um, so a variety of these little little short stories that had been written by professional writers like Bob Kaniger, uh, the legendary comics writer at DC Comics, would write a lot of these little things, and so they're great exercises. And and yeah, they would get published in the book. Okay, you're a storyteller, and. Back in the 80s, even before that, it was a very clear distinction between the writer and the artist in the credits when credits were eventually added to the books sometime in the early, mid-60s. Were there books that you worked on that you were also providing help with the story, the plot, that wasn't necessarily credited, or were you strictly focused at that point on the art? From pretty early on, I, I 
would have a, sort of a foot in both camps. I was clearly, you know, much more focused on on mastering to the extent that I have been able to um, uh, the the technical the technical challenges of of the drawing part of it. But yeah, from early on, um, once in a while, on these little short stories in the back of the Sergeant Ross book, we would be allowed to we we could pitch our own ideas or stories to Joe. So I did I get to write and draw a couple of my own backup stories in Sergeant Clock, which is great. And then um, a year or two later, uh, I started getting, when I was getting some other um, short assignments from other editors at DC on some of the other books, because uh, the Sergeant Rock stories were sort of an entryway in. They would get our names and faces and, and work in front of uh, other editors there. And occasionally they'd say, oh, maybe this guy's ready to try a, a little short story in the back of a horror anthology or something. Um, and uh, I was working on the first sort of regular assignment I had was an ongoing story that ran in the back of the Warlord comic book. It was called The Barren Earth. And it was a, a science fiction series that had a lot of Edgar Rice Burroughs stuff going on. It was wonderful. Uh, it was written by a, a guy named Gary Cohn, who co-created the, the um, Blue Devil um, at at DC back in the day. Um, but Gary and I worked very collaboratively. Uh, Gary would write basically a, um, like a story outline or a synopsis and send that to me. And then I would break it down uh, visually panel by panel and often write in suggested bits of dialogue. And then it would go back to Gary and he would give it a, another um, run through on his typewriter and send it back to me. So uh, he and I really worked to shape that story together. Gary had the broad strokes of it down, but he and I worked together to um, work on character details and, and and some of the beats of the story we worked out together. So um, I had some of those really collaborative experiences where I was sort of getting to early on exercise some, <laughs> some of the writing muscles. And other times I was just given a script to draw. But even there... It's a very collaborative medium, even if you never say one word to the writer or the writer to you, because you, you're given the script and it's your job to interpret that and make it come alive in a series of pictures. And, um, and, and so you're, you have to have good instincts as a storyteller to help pace the story and where is the focus of this moment? The writer might write a panel that has a situation in it, but it's your job to compose it to emphasize the right things and to focus the eye where it needs to be. And you've got to have good storytelling instincts to make that work. Even if you're working from a full script, um, the story can lie there flat and lifeless if you if you don't know how to guide the eye and to an extent guide the, the emotional focus of the reader as well. Yeah, that's what I hear from just about every artist I talk to is that's the expectation is that they need to interpret that script. They're not just there as a draftsman to lay out exactly what's in a full script, but they're there to interpret and help and maybe even add some things to it. And most writers are open to changes to how something appears on the page when it's when it's rendered in a drawing. Um, but it sounds like, you know, your experience working with Joe and his passion for t- telling stories and the opportunities you had at DC in those early days to do those backup stories and actually start to write really helped prepare you and give you the confidence and the skills you needed to strike out and work on Trekker on your own. Yeah, it, it really did. It's it's, it's funny how uh, <laughs> you when you're when you're living your life moment by moment, you some you often don't see um, what this is going to lead to or how this is preparing you for that. But then when you look back on it in the past, you say, that was actually pretty good training. I, I stumbled into for myself <laughs> there because um, I, I didn't foresee the opportunity uh, to, to create something like Trekker until it was presented to me. And then I found myself tapping into all those prior experiences. Um, and that really did help to, to give me some basis to start with. I mean, I still felt like I was starting in sort of over my head and having to, make it up as I went along for a while, but uh, but I did have enough background that I was able to get through it. <laughs> Who are some of the people behind the scenes that, that helped support you spiritually and emotionally as you were bringing Mercy St. Clair to the printed page? I mean, a couple of people you've acknowledged in your books, um, David Clemenson and Kurt Thayer, and they didn't pay me to mention them, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
How did they help support you uh, coming up with uh, Trekker and bring it to the printed page? Kurt uh, was my, my best buddy from from grade school, and uh, he got a, a nod. He passed away sadly years ago, but he got a nod because he was the guy who uh, – who he was the first guy I knew who didn't just not only read comic books because most kids back then would read comic books casually, but we sort of took it for granted, like you'd read a comic book and eat a Snickers bar. But but Kurt had uh, had his comic books were collected and sorted by writers and artists. Carl Barks did these issues of Uncle Scrooge; those are the good ones. You know, Jack Kirby uh, working with Stanley on the Fantastic Four is a great thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was, it, it sounds very simplistic or, or, or obvious now, but when you're a little kid, you just, yeah, I just, you just read the comic books. So Kurt was the guy who opened my eyes and, and, and I first said, Oh, people do this for a living. <laughs> it was, again, it seems sort of obvious, but that's when a light bulb went off in my little head. And I just thought that sounds pretty neat. And, uh, so he got the ball rolling and, uh, both he and uh, Dave Clemens, since you mentioned, who is a cousin, uh, we all grew up together and uh, loved comics and storytelling and uh, started to, you know, make up our own characters uh, when we were in grade school and designing our own characters and starting to write and draw our own stories that we'd share and pass around amongst ourselves and some other buddies. So um, uh, those are the, you know, they just sort of, we were co-inspirers, I guess I would say. And then as time went by, most of the guys that uh, that I had those sort of experiences with when I was a kid, they would they would uh, drift off and find other things that that captivated their interest, you know, sports, uh, cars, whatever. And um, while I found other interests, I, for whatever reason, the the focus on drawing and, and comic books and storytelling that never left me. It stayed really central. And uh, um, so I don't know why it's. it's sunk in deeper or more lastingly with me than it did with some of my, my buddies, but, but it did. And I don't have any regrets. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me about the day you first pitched the idea of Trekker to Mike Richardson? Cause I, that's where the book was first published. That's where the character first appeared was through Dark Horse Comics and Dark Horse Presents. Right. Yeah. 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 I was, uh, so this goes back to sort of ancient history. Uh, this is actually the 30th, this will be, this is the 30th year anniversary of, uh, of Trucker first coming into print. So what happened was, as I said, I've been living in New Jersey and I, I had just moved back to Portland after I was out there for about seven years. And I thought, Oh boy, here I'm moving 3000 miles away from the entire comics industry. I, I hope that I've uh, established, established myself, well enough in some good solid relationships with the publishers and editors that I can work long distance because this is before the internet and I think we we had Federal Express was just coming in and at fax machines but it was still pretty you know it felt pretty remote but it, I just happened to move back here the summer the Dark Horse was, was getting going and I was at a local comic book convention here my first summer back in town and uh, and Mike and Randy Stradley uh, came up and introduced themselves and said they were just getting a comic book company started and they were looking to get some um, some guys who were working professionally to uh to contribute to some other things and um and they said if you if you come and work for us uh you know we'll, we'll let you create your own book if you want to and i thought oh, well i'll never hear that again in my life <laughs> and uh i was right but um so even though i was working uh on a steady steady book for dc at the time a full-time job i I just kept thinking about that invitation to to try something that was all my own and um, without having to try to persuade a publisher to do it. You know, I just said, if I had a chance to do the comic book series that I would want to do, what would that, what would that be? What would it contain? And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I gradually I started to form the idea in my head. I mean, there were certain things I knew I'd want. I, I've always loved science fiction since I was a little kid and discovered Flash Gordon and, you know, then uh, when I was in my uh, 20s and things like Star Wars came out, we were just, oh my gosh, you can see, uh, for the first time you could see a science fiction movie that moved and felt real and believable and was exciting. Um, <laughs> and um, and then things like Blade Runner and, and so that was such a great, and uh, reading things like Dune and, and Isaac Asimov's 
uh, foundation trilogy, things like that. So I, I, I want to do a science fiction story. And because science fiction was a hard sell, especially back then. It was still pretty much a superhero-dominated industry. You might have, well, if they're going to give me a chance, if they, if they want to know from me what I would want to do, I'd want a science fiction series. I, I'd want it to uh, be about something. I want it to be about this exploration of, you know, violence and the world and a character who has this, is on this journey, um, exploring all that stuff. And uh, I thought it would be compelling to have a, a young female character in that role because especially back then, it was that was kind of an, uh, you know, an unusual setting and an unusual take on the character. But I thought, I thought some of the emotional potential that could explore there would be really cool and rich. Um, and of course it was a completely non-commercial idea, science fiction female lead action adventure character back in the mid eighties, you know, and to my everlasting, uh, gratitude. when I, when I wrote up this whole proposal and sent it into to Mike Richardson and said to him saying, that's a very fun sounding idea, Ron, but we don't know how to sell that book. You know what? He didn't say that at all. He said, this sounds really fun. Let's do it. And so that was it. That was, uh, very exciting for me. And then I sort of had this moment of panic about how, oh, now I've got to really figure out how to pull this off. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I sort of dove into it. Unfortunately, the first, um, the first story was just a, a three-part serialized uh, thing in the early issues of the old Black and White Dark Horse Presents book. So three little eight-page uh, story segments that tell the first tale. And I thought, well, I should be able to that's a scale I think I can work at and, and keep it a coherent story that, you know, that holds together well. And, uh, then from there we went on to moving into our own series and, uh, um, yeah, sort of proceeded from there. And, uh, John Workman created the logo for Trekker and among all the other work he's done was the letter on Walt Simonson's store back in the eighties. And he's also the letter mm-hmm. on his book now Ragnarok. So did you, um, know John, prior to uh, making the logo or was that something, someone that was assigned to you at one point? I only knew John very, uh, I think we just met a couple of times sort of glancingly at, at different events back when I was living back in the East coast. But no, um, the way that came out, I think they just, um, I had done an, an initial little logo for the first tracker story back, you know, dark was just starting out, but very quickly they were growing and becoming more and more, you know, professional and making more and more connections with, established professionals in the, in the industry. And, um, I don't actually remember now exactly how it happened, but it probably went something like at one point, uh, they offered to, um, you know, to have John take a shot at it. And I just said, John Workman, are you kidding me? Sure. Whatever. And, uh, so he, <laughs> he came up with a, with a, with a terrific logo. And, um, I've always I've always been in love with what he did. It it, it had a good sense of sort of a you know that that classic adventure. Uh, there's a certain boldness to it, and it, it sort of it sort of moves and 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 uh, it speaks of uh, it speaks of just the right uh, a little bit of edge to it. And um, yeah, I just thought it captured the spirit of, of what I was going for in the series perfectly. And it's been on the series ever since, pretty much unchanged, right? I mean, that's the logo that's been used since the beginning. Yeah, it has. For the uh, for the new book, uh, The Rites of Passage, we took John's logo and just didn't change the um, you know, the, the the letter design that he came up with, but we we just sort of uh, just sort of angled it slightly or something like that. It was a, a minor tweak to sort of quote unquote modernize it ever so slightly. But uh, uh, I've always said. Like when I first came back uh, to Trekker after years away with the Avalon Bay story, and some people asked me questions like, and they were, they were well-meaning questions. They would just say, oh, is this going to be a reboot or you know, a restart? And I said, no, it's the next story. I mean, Trekker has been designed from the beginning as a, it's it's a very linear arc. You know, it's not going to be done in fits and starts and, and, uh, and the rules aren't going to change. And so, so the continuity of the whole series is very important to me. And so... The, the changes as they come will be these 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 sort of uh, minor evolutionary steps like we all go through in our real world where where the changes are are sort of slow and gradual but they add up to you know if you see yourself ten years ago and see where you are now there's a threat of continuity but 
but there's growth. And so that's, you know, I don't know how I got onto that exactly, except that the logo in some way <laughs> mm-hmm. seems to sort of uh, characterize a little bit of that too. A lot of continuity, but, but um, trying, to, trying to refresh it a little bit from time to time. Yeah, and one of the great things for readers that want to check it out today is, as I said before, it's all in an omnibus, so they can see how the character progresses through each one of those stories in one sitting if they mm-hmm. like, or, but they don't have to go out and collect all the books. They can always just grab it in this trade. And looking at this trade, and these are stories from 84 to 99 that you had written and drawn, you have some really great testimonials on this book. I mean, you have a forward by Gail Simone, Kurt Busick as well. I mean, now, Gail said in her, her intro that that she had read your stories as a young girl. And that was yeah. amazing. I mean, that's, that's fantastic. That's a wonderful testimonial that, that you reached one of our best writers today. Yeah, when, um, when, when I was working with Dark Horse to prepare the omnibus, and they said we need to have a, you know, an introductory uh, piece for the book, uh, who would you like to, to try to have write it? I, uh, the absolute truth is my first, my first thought was, I'd love it if Gail would do it. It would be so flattering because I admire her work and especially, you know, obviously, obviously her work on characters of diversity and strong women characters and stuff. Gail has been so, um, so pivotal in, in those aspects of how comic writing has evolved for the last, what, 20 years or something. Um, and since I had, worked with Gail and, and been able to meet her and put occasionally bump into her at shows and stuff. And she's just, <laughs> as any fan who's ever met her will tell you, she's just, you know, such a delight. She's so generous. And, and again, like, like Joe, you know, very passionate about, about comics and she always is. Anyway, so, um, I, I got in touch with her and <laughs> when she said, well, I'm just getting ready to leave for a, um, a convention I've been invited to in Australia uh, and it's been a while since I've looked at Trekker, but if you could send me some, some PDFs so I could refresh my memory a little bit, I'll see if I can do something for you. And uh, a few days later, I got an email from her. She was probably still down in Australia with this incredible uh, forward that I was just floored. Um, it was so <laughs> it was so flattering. Um, I just feel really honored. And Kurt, too. And actually, I mean, I guess this was his uh, quote on your book was before you had actually done some work with him on Astro City. I did know Kurt and I had worked with him uh in, in the past. Back okay. in the back in the days when Marvel had their what if <laughs> book, I did a couple of what if stories that Kurt wrote. Oh okay. and uh, a few other a, a few other jobs. We've had um we've known each other for a long time but we've only been able to, you know, you know, to to connect a, a couple of times on projects over the years. But uh I've always did Kurt was another writer who I just did. The thing I admire the most about Kurt, well, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things. But he's got a great imagination, great great vision, but he brings it to task with an incredibly focused sense of craft. Uh, every one of his stories, everything is there for a very specific and clear reason, and it's it's all to the point of making the story work, and he thinks everything through so thoroughly in his scripts um, that as an artist, it's a dream because you know exactly why you're drawing everything and you know you're in the hands of somebody who is, who really understands the craft of, of visual storytelling as well as, you know, the, the more abstract writer things about, you know, generating characters and, and establishing con conflicts and that sort of stuff. But Kurt just is such a great uh, encyclopedic knowledge of the history of comics and what he wants to do within that. Um, so, so he was obviously another person that was, very eager to see if I could get him to do on a few kind words, and and he he did. It was again, I just really salamed. And the first work you did with him, you said was a what if issue. Um, I'm not familiar with yeah. that one. Which which one was it? We did two, and I don't remember which they came. Uh, one was a what if what if Weapon X fought Wolverine because okay. he could do that in what if stories. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one was a what if Jane Grey married Cyclops. Okay, uh, so um, yeah. That was a fun title. What if? Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, that's, uh, in a way that sort of led to some of these, uh, like at DC, they then had like their Elseworld stories, and well, now you can have all these. Uh, I mean, the first ones I heard of, I guess, were back in the I don't know the 
what, late 50s, early 60s, when these would have their imaginary tales. What if Lois Lane discovered Clark right. was Superman? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and they were just fun ways to try those sort of, you know, an alternative take on characters. And now, with some of those characters having this 75-year-plus history, um, it's really great that people can, can try to, you know, just, they can view the character from, you know, five-degree different angle. And, uh, and they just... Uh, they can be you could you could have a lot of fun playing with the characters or take them into really really dark places too um without you know affecting the 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 core whatever the core uh, mythos of the character now um after the trekker on the bus stories the stories that are contained within there um although you were still very busy working in comics and your other work mm-hmm. you did take a bit of a hiatus i say between 2000 2012 from trekker and what yeah. made you decide that 2013 was the right time to come back was just that burning passion inside you had to get back to the character well i always i always intended to get back to trekker and what i kept saying was i'm going to get back to it to it as soon as I, you know, could find a way to make that happen. And, uh, but I kept saying it and, and not making it happen because I was, you know, making my, making my bones, as they say, uh, uh, doing stories that sort of kept my tray pretty full. But uh, every time I go to a show, there would be people who would say, when are you get, when are you going to tell more stories about Mercy St. Clair? When are we going to see more Trekker? And I keep saying, I've got the, and this is true. I mean, I'd, I'd had the, the train to Avalon Bay and the story that follows it, Rites of Passage. I had outlines for both of those stories sitting in a drawer waiting for me to get to them <laughs> um, for, for, like a, for like a decade. Um, and what finally happened was I finally, uh, very, you know, belatedly, because I'm not the fastest thinker on the planet, I, 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 it dawned on me by hearing some other artists talking that, oh, yeah, there's this thing called the Internet and there's these things called web that you can have a web comic on, and I realized I had you know, the, all these like almost close to 300 pages of of existing Trekker stories, the ones that had already appeared in Dark Horse years ago at this point. Um, I've got all the original art from that stuff because I never sold any of the Trekker originals, and I said I could scan all those things in and start posting it as a web comic. And uh, so I, I built a website and, and started doing that. And uh, the, the the crucial thing was that I declared publicly on the website and stuff that by the time I finish posting the existing stories, the, the next story will be ready to start posting. So I gave myself a deadline. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it actually worked. <laughs> so um, uh, those stories started posting, and that, that meant the clock was ticking. So I pulled out my, uh, the script for the train to Avalon Bay, uh, dusted it off, and I was so grateful that I had that script um, pretty close to finished uh, because after a, you know a decade away from the character even though she and that world had continued to sort of live within my mind to a to an extent but I wasn't you know engaged with it on a day in and day out basis so I thought how 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 is the re-entry to this world going to be for me is this going to be how long is it going to take me to to get the tone right and the feel of the characters in the world and stuff. And even though I am, you know, a, a different artist by a decade or so since the last time I picked up a pencil to draw a Trekker story, um, I had that, I had that script, which brought a lot of it back to me right away. A lot of the tone was there, the attitudes of the characters and the, the atmosphere, the mood I was going for. And, um, I, I think and I hope that all I've done in the interval has gotten better as a writer and as an artist. <laughs> so that um, moving forward, it was a much smoother re-entry, I guess is what I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. than I thought it would be. And uh, I feel that the early stories that were done back in the 80s, uh, I do, you look at those things and they're fairly dense. A lot of panels per page, a lot of, a lot of uh, copy in the panels, because that's the way a lot of comics were done back then. And... Uh, now I'm, you know, I've I've got at least some of the sensibilities of a more modern writer. Fewer panels per page, uh, less dialogue on the pages, a different sort of pacing to the stories. So some of that um, has made its way into the Trekker stories. But again, I tried to not make it a real abrupt shift. Um, one of the things that I'm the most proud to hear is readers who have bought and read the Omnibus. And then they read the train to Avalon Bay, and they see it. It, it just reads like it's the next story. Exactly. That, that, I was going to say that. Yeah. I don't feel like a big jump or a shift that I could go from one to the next, like it was just the next chapter in that that same omnibus. It didn't feel like a change, or any kind of gap took well, place. 
Yeah, thank you. That's again. That's I was so gratified to hear that because my again my idea wasn't to restart the character. I don't want to throw away all the all the foundational stuff that the omnibus had in it. All that stuff, you know, has helped to bring the characters to the place that they're at now. Um, so I liked. I want that continuity to be there. And at the same time, I all it's really important to me that a reader could pick up Train Tap on Bay or Rites of Passage and 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 start there and read the story from there. I, you know, obviously I hope that they'll be intrigued enough that they'll want to go back and, and see the whole, the whole tale from the beginning. But, but I, I don't want anybody to feel obligated to, you know, to buy an entire library of books to know what's happening in the next issue. If you want to see the development of the character throughout their life, mm-hmm. throughout all these stories, it'll add a lot to your enjoyment of the character, but there's no need to start. I mean, I didn't start there, actually. I started with Train to Avalon Bay, reading it in the pages of Dark mm-hmm. Horse Presents, and then I went back and read right. Beyond the Bus. Again, that's, that's, that's music in my ears. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what I was hoping for. And that's how the anthology should work, is that someone like myself can come in and say, oh, I want to you know check that out check out the story and that's really good. I'm going to buy this again next month to read the next chapter, the next chapter. But um, in the book, in the, the trade collection of the trade to Avalon Bay, you mentioned mm-hmm. your Periscope Studios, which you co-founded. And mm-hmm. I wanted to know a little more about that. I wasn't familiar with Periscope Studios. Can you explain when that was founded, why it was founded, and uh, who else is part of the studio? Um, okay, uh, let's see. Uh, it, w- it was founded in about in 2002. So we've been around for a while now. Um, it's, um, by a bunch of artists that live here in, in Portland, uh, Portland, Oregon for, for a lot of reasons, some of which, uh, have to do with things like the fact that Dark Horse is here, um, only press is now here as well, but a lot of artists started moving to Portland. It was a very, it's always been a very livable city and a good place for people that sort of, uh, have their, you know, sort of do it yourself sort of, um. Uh, sensibility is, is strong here, uh, but for whatever reason, a lot of cartoonists were living here, and and we uh, some of us would get together, um, sort of casually over a cup of coffee and just do a little shop talking. And at some point, uh, somebody said, you know, maybe we should think about making a studio. And so a couple people um, were proactive and started looking for a space, and um, we just uh, decided to uh, to do that. So it's structured like sort of like an artist co-op where everybody sort of pitches in for the rent on a large shared space. Everybody brings in a drawing board of their own and uh, a couple of shelves and stuff. And uh, we, um, we just find a lot of, uh, a lot of fulfillment in working in, in community with a bunch of other artists um, because they're just a terrific group. Uh, the studio started off with, um, some pretty, pretty well-known cartoonist names. Steve Lieber is a founding member. Carl Kiesel, Terry Dodson, uh, Matthew Clark, um, Pete Woods, Paul Guinan. Uh, people like that uh, were were there from day one, and uh, a couple of you know, moved away or moved on in other ways. And, but the studio over time has just grown and grown, and we have several, uh, like a whole new generation or two of cartoonists that are now also members of the studio. And uh, uh, it's 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 a great group of talented, engaged, stimulating people to be around. And uh, it's, it's really helped to keep me um, inspired and, and uh, engaged in my own, in my own, uh, in my own uh, what, career, in my own uh, medium in a way that's hard to do when you're sort of working in the isolation of your own home studio, which I did for many years. And I still have a home studio and I love, basically I split my time. I spend half of my work week, uh, working in my home studio because sometimes you're the most creative working in isolation or you can cover the most ground with fewer distractions. Uh, and then when I'm banging away on a tough deadline, I'm often just need, need to be in that isolated space. But too much of anything isn't good for you. Oh, sure. So I love to balance it between that and then going to the studio and being able to see what this person's working on. How is that person dealing with, you know, a difficult client or a storytelling issue? Or what new, what new digital technology trick has that person uh, stumbled upon that I might be able to find a way to fold into my work process? Um, so 
So again, uh, it's just another case where I just felt incredibly fortunate that I was in the right place in the right time. Now, since you started in comics to today, what are some of the big changes that you see in the industry that have impacted you the most in both a positive way and those in not such a positive way? Oh man, where can I begin? <laughs> well, I guess b- because I'm so so passionate and close to my own project sector, one of the things that has been such a profound palpable change in the industry is the is the presence of women and the greater diversity of, of comics in the readership, in the characters, in the creators. Um, we still have a long way to go. I don't want to um, say that we're anywhere near where we need to be. The fact that it is that I when I go to conventions, uh, young women will come up and they'll see Tucker and they'll be excited because she is a strong, tough, self-defining looking character that has all of her clothes on while she goes out to have a rough and tumble adventure. And they're excited to see something like that. And you know, obviously I'm very proud that I created a character years ago that still had that degree of resonance or whatever, you know, believability. But it's a bit dismaying that it, that she's still as unusual as in that regard as she is. But anyway, so that's, mm. that's been one of the big changes that, um, that, uh, that there are, so and and the, the, the God bless them the 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 women and the girl readers they help to keep us all honest you know they're, they're really good at calling us and uh, that's that's wonderful uh, it helps to keep us all evolving and it, it, I think it's really um, helped to draw comic books uh, almost kicking and screaming out of this long protracted awkward adolescence that we've been in for a long time and I think we're finally um, becoming. Uh, a mature art form in a lot of ways. Uh, a lot of things have contributed to that. Um, but a lot of, I think is the fact that we now have this much more balanced, palpable readership. And as, you know, as, uh, as I know, it's been true that women have always been reading comics and, and making them too, but the visibility of it, it's, it's, it's so much more, it's so much more, uh, in, closer to imbalance now. That's, that's been a tremendously exciting thing. The, the advent of, um, you know, the the independent market that started coming about back in the 80s uh, with direct sales comics and small publishers being able to pop up all over the place and then accelerating when the influence of manga came in and and websites where you can, where virtually anybody can make a comic book now because you don't have to deal with the overhead of the huge publishing costs and distribution and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's dizzying how much material is out there the, the variety of comic books that you can find and, you know, both in subject matter, uh, you know, genres, presentation styles, formats, and quality, too. There's still a lot of crummy comics being done, just like there's a lot of, in, in any sort of pop culture, <laughs> five or ten years later, you look back and say, oh, that was really kind of, you right. know, didn't have a lot of value to it. But there is also some amazing stuff being done and and, and probably more of it. Than, than ever before. Uh, I think we're just absolutely in a golden age of, of this sort of, you know, whatever you call it, graphic storytelling, comic books, whatever. Um, new new sorts of people are coming in with new techniques, new ideas, new types of stories to tell as well as ways to tell them. And um, it's, it's so easy to see something that excites you. Uh, I think as, as a reader and certainly as a, as a creator, um, uh, it's, uh, it's it, it, like I said, it, it's dizzying. And um, so there's all that. There's an audience that is that has been hungry for more diversity for years. And now with these web distribution channels and other ways to get your art out there, yeah, sure, there are plenty of crummy books too, but now there's a lot of good ones that could never see the light of day because someone couldn't mm-hmm. break in and now get noticed and have a shot right. of see, having their work seen and appreciated. And some of the stuff, like I was saying before, some of the stuff is, just isn't very good. But in some cases, it isn't. It may not be very good right now. That that is, say, it may not be very accomplished or professional, or, or you know, have a great sense of mastery. But it may be being done by somebody who is, you know, very young or young in age, or at least young in experience. But it's if it's a first, if it's a first exercise, boy, you learn so much in the first few books that you do. <laughs> um, that who knows where that same artist where that same strip is going to be six months down the road from now. The, there can be some quantum leaps um, that can happen, you know, very, very suddenly. 
Um, so again, it's just uh, the so the, the challenge of it is again, there's just so much of it out there that uh, you simply I don't I don't think anybody can 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 hope to keep up with everything that's going on. You, and you the you always you can always say, gosh, I will bet you there's something great. There must be a great comic book about you know drag car racing or something out there. If only I could find that. Maybe it's a website someplace. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, you can do web searches now. So uh, just about anything you can think to look for, you'll probably be able to stumble upon somebody who's doing some interesting work in that. That's one of the reasons why I have this show. I have guests on like you that can pitch your book in the story of Mercy St. Clair. And right. that next chapter is coming out February 8th. Comic mm-hmm. shops everywhere. So, folks, That's if, right. you, if you didn't pre-order through Diamond, like I did, I ordered my own copy, <laughs> um, go to your LCS, even if you don't have a subscription, and tell them you're interested. They'll put one aside for you, or uh, you know, if they don't have one, they'll order one for you. They, comic book shops want to make their customers happy, and they want to bring in new customers, and they want more diversity in the stores as well. And if you tell them what you want, they'll be glad to help you out. And, Ron, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your new book coming up, and that's mm-hmm. Rites of Passage, Trekker in the next chapter of Mercy St. Clair. And thank you so much for talking about your time at the Kubert Studio and your own work at Periscope Studios and all of your experience and words of wisdom you've imparted upon us today. Well, thanks so much, Chris. It's, I appreciate the opportunity. And as you say, the, uh, there's so much stuff out there. The, the challenge that somebody like, like I have is, uh, is getting word out about my own little book <laughs> and hoping that more and more people continue to find it. And it's gratifying to see it happening. Thus concludes my interview with Ron Randall, and you can get Trekker Rites of Passage at comic shops everywhere on February 8th. And don't forget, Ron is working at Helioscope Studios, formerly Periscope Studios. And if you're in need of some commercial artwork, I'd ask you to check out Ron's work there, and also the work of his studio mates, which is all listed there on the site, along with examples of their work. Thank you for listening. You can reach me through Facebook at Creator Talks Pod and on Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. Also, don't forget to check out my blog on my website, creatortalks.com. I post once a week with notes about the show and tease what's coming up next week. Sometimes I even have some additional content that I couldn't put on the podcast. If you want to send me an email, you can also do that through creatortalks.com. As always, I know you have a lot of podcasts to choose from, and I thank you for choosing this one. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.